Hello. You are listening to Maghrebin Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode was recorded via Zoom on the 24th of March, 2022. In this podcast, Dr. Larissa Shamyak, CEMAT Director, interviews Dr. Amy Callender, Associate Professor of History and Affiliated Faculty with Women's and Gender Studies at Syracuse University in New York, USA, about Thoughts on State Building, Decolonization, Gender and Tunisia, Insights from the Global 1960s. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a bit about your interests that led to the development of the second book project? So my probably since my first trip to Tunisia back in 2001, I was looking around me and thinking about the general knowledge about Tunisia and, and the differences between sort of the cliches about Tunisia and the more nuanced realities of what it meant to be living or working in, in Tunisia. So this basically was an interest in women in Tunisia and the limits of the celebratory narrative of, of state feminism, or even the limits of the narratives of Tunisian exceptionalism. And in many ways, I see a lot of parallels between the way that narrative of Tunisian exceptionalism has, has focused on women and the ways in which the narratives of, say, Tunisia's democratic facade or um, Tunisia's economic miracle, you know, that was talked about in the first decade of the 2000s, that all of these narratives were very superficial and, and lacked nuance. And scholars have really tried to take them apart and look at what's underneath the democratic facade or what's underneath sort of the stories of Tunisian economic success. And then in 2011, after the overthrow of the Ben Ali regime, many of these cliches really resurfaced and not just in, in popular media and in governance, despite the fact that they've been challenged by academics and critical thinkers for decades, um, but this narrative of Tunisian exceptionalism is very tenacious as is sort of the celebratory narrative of Tunisian state feminism. So those are kind of the questions that I was thinking about when putting the book together. Um, thank you so much, um, Amy. This is really interesting, especially the kind of, you know, the um, exceptionalism narrative that has guided so much inquiry, not just the the, the paradox question of the uh, 1990s and 2000s, but um, especially the democratic exception. But in terms of this book, how do you kind of position the question of state feminism um, in the exceptionalism narrative, like whether, yeah, how do you position into the exceptionalism? Okay, this is a great way of thinking through it. So one of the things that I try to do is draw on the secondary scholarship about state feminism in other parts of the Middle East and more broadly, but to a lesser extent elsewhere in the world. So some of that is to say, make comparisons between state feminism in Tunisia and state feminism in Egypt, right? Um, and I point towards Egypt just because there is more scholarship on, on Egypt. Um, but there are also a lot of comparisons to be made with state feminism in Turkey, state feminism in Iran, um, and also state feminism in Iraq, where in all of these cases, 
the focus of state feminism is number one, creating a state-sponsored women's organization, usually to the detriment of any other women's organizing. And then number two, passing laws, especially in the area of marriage, divorce, and, and custody that are seen as being more beneficial to women than not. And if we look in those areas, there are so many similarities between Tunisia and, and many other countries in the Middle East. And actually in the case of Iraq, the Iraqi legislation that was passed in 1958 actually includes changes to inheritance that were the most controversial and, the, and that give women a greater share of inheritance. And in the Tunisian case, there was, there was no change to inheritance, right? I'm in many ways uncomfortable with the terms that rank and compare of one being quote unquote better or quote unquote more progressive than another. But if we're gonna think in those comparative ways, then there are, there are ways that the Iraqi laws go further than, than those in Tunisia. Um, if we compare Tunisia to Egypt, then the Egyptian state did more for women in terms of encouraging women to enter the workforce. And I also draw a little bit on the work of Kirsten Rudzi, who is an anthropologist looking at, at Europe primarily. And she talks about state feminism and, and basically makes this really an argument that I find very compelling, which says, you know, in, in the US Academy, we're trained to think about opposition as necessarily being independent and that's the only way of creating change and her response is to say that this is a, in many ways a very cold war bias and that just as much can be accomplished for women's rights by working with the state and in many socialist nations i think the i think she's looking at bulgaria women are happy to work with the state because some of the changes that they want to see taking place need the backing of the state um, and she draws on some of the secondary scholarship on Yemen to say, actually, when we look at the example of Yemen and how much, you know, women's lives were transformed under um, the socialist regime in the PDRY, that we really need to think through our framing as U.S. trained academics and not presume that a women's organization has to be independent in order to accomplish something for women. So I try to take that framing, right, and say, okay. So we don't need to look at the women's women's movement in Tunisia and say, because they have an alliance with the state, that therefore they're not beneficial to women. And we should use the work of scholars such as um, Marvat Hatam and her critique of state feminism, right? That's incredibly helpful. Denise Candioti as well, to think about what is gained and what is lost. But we don't want to just say, oh, okay, because women in Tunisia are affiliated with the government, that therefore they can't accomplish anything because they're not independent and that independent women's groups do more. I guess I, I started off, your question was about how to, how to go beyond the exceptionalism narrative. And again, some of it is saying, okay, let's look at the similarities between Tunisia, Egypt, um, Iran, Iraq. And yes, there are many differences as well. There are some advantages in Tunisia. It's a smaller nation. Um, it's more homogenous, but not just presuming that that women in Tunisia have accomplished more or, or are better off or are somehow are, are more progressive, but 
really just trying to add nuance to those stories. So I'm going to build a little bit on the first question and both answers and ask you about the kind of the engagement and the conversation that your work has with the work produced by Tunisian scholars themselves. So one of the things that we love so much about this book is precisely that engagement and the conversation and the way in which you are in conversation with the work of Tunisian academics here, especially I'm thinking of Ilham Marzouki. Can you tell us a bit more of how your work contributes to the ongoing conversation on state building, modernization and state feminism? Yes. So this does connect really well to the first question. So when I first spent time in Tunisia, I spent a lot of my time just sitting in libraries and, and reading books. And many of those books were the ones written by Tunisian academics. So Ilham Marzouki, um, who's a, a Tunisian sociologist and a feminist and activist, um, her work was really informative. And for me, she's in many ways kind of the pioneering scholar on, on women and gender and feminist movements in, in Tunisia. The historian Suad Bakaldi, who wrote on women in the colonial period is also in some ways in, a similar genre. And Marzuki is somebody who really worked to give agency to Tunisian women. And a lot of this scholarship is really from the 1980s, 1990s. So it's kind of a second generation of women after independence who are pushing back against some of the narratives and, and especially the narrative that the Tunisia's first president, Habib Bourguiba, gave Tunisian women independence and women themselves really had nothing to do with that. And again, Ilham Marzouki and Suad Bakalti are really writing women into the narrative. And Marzouki as well is very critical of the limits of the state feminist project. And they're writing at a time where the feminist movement in Tunisia is branching out into multiple different, you know, kind of study groups and um women's intellectual organizations. And so reading her books, and I met Ilham Marzouki when, when I was a young graduate student, and she very kindly shared a bunch of her scholarship with me. I still have photocopies of conference presentations that, that she gave me. So, so I do use her work. There are also collected memoirs that were published by the Tunisian research, um, what is it, Khadif, the Center for Research and Documentation on Women, there are other women who were active at, um, either in the 1980s, like Azaghanmi, who have written memoirs about their experiences with feminist organizing. There are other women who were active earlier, less in, in feminist projects, but I'm thinking of Jalila Hafsia, who has a multi-volume publication of her, her diaries. And then there's also scholars like um, Sophie Basis and Suhair Balhassan, who've written about, about women in this earlier period. And I use all of their work in thinking about what women were doing, how they're becoming engaged, what that means. And then what I try to do is think about this in relation to state building and modernization. And here too, I'm building on the work of Tunisian scholars, especially in, in terms of the labor movement. And I'm thinking here of Abdeslam Ben Hamida, right, who was one of the first scholars to write really extensively on the Tunisian labor movement, the UGTT in the 1940s and 1950s. And, you know, his some of his arguments are not only about the pivotal role that they played in the nationalist movement that was later kind of glossed over by the single party state, but also about the compromises that the labor union in some ways was forced to make and in other ways chose to make 
because of their alliance with the state. And I think there are a lot of parallels that we can draw there. The women's movement was much, much smaller, right? So in terms of size and impact, it, it really can't be compared to the labor movement, but in terms of its positionality of, you know, this decision of we believe in independence and we wanna build a new nation and we want it to be the best nation that it can be. So we're gonna throw our lot in behind the, the post-colonial state. And that's largely what the labor union did, at least many of the people in its leadership, it wasn't a unanimous decision and there were consequences for that. And the women's movement is in a very similar position in terms of appreciating the support from the state and believing in state building projects, even though that limits what they can accomplish as far as becoming part of the opposition. So it's some of that that scholarship that um, I, I try to bring into conversation together and to think about the ways in which the development of a single party state corresponded to authoritarianism and, and repression, especially for those who diverge from the party line, whether in explicitly political ways or otherwise. And this is true of these sort of um, social movements and civil society groups in the same ways that it's also true for intellectuals. And there are more scholars today who are who are writing on, on these questions as well, whose, whose work I draw on. Great. I'm going to get back to um, kind of the relationship between um, state feminism and kind of early development uh, period, just a moment. Um, but just to kind of to follow up a little bit on um, uh, putting, you know, the work um, in conversation with the longstanding literature in Tunisia, um, I want to ask a question about methodology and if you can talk a bit about what kind of methodology, both as a historian and someone who has conducted all these years and years and years of field research employees. Yeah, so, you know, as I start off by saying, you know, my first trips to Tunisia were over 20 years ago and I ended up just spending a lot of time sitting in libraries and reading books about Tunisia. And it's not that those books were not available in the United States, but one of the advantages of some of the research institutions in Tunisia was just having a lot of those books in one place and having them easily accessible. So I started learning about Tunisia in many ways by just reading a lot of the secondary scholarship that was available. Um, and again, plenty of that being published um, by, by Tunisians. This project was built off of a number of different research trips. Um, this included, I think, trips to Tunisia in 2012, 2016, and 2018, archival and research work in France in 2015, um, as well as trips to research libraries in the United States in, in 2017. I used the National Library in Tunisia. I went to the library of the Tunisian Women's Movement, right, the UNFT, um, and spent some time in their library. Khadif also has a library that I used with, and, and they have some archives, but, but not a ton. Um, I went to the library of the National Office of Family Planning and Population, um, and spent some time there. Um, I also went to the RTT, the Tunisian Radio and Television. Um, I wanted to find out if they had any recordings of some of the radio shows, because there used to be a, a women's radio show called Hasat al-Mar'a back in the 60s, and they couldn't find any recordings. They told me that at the time, you know, they reused their broadcast reels, 
So they often recorded over a lot of them. So, but they welcomed me into their space and, and, and showed me around. So basically the project was built through a number of different libraries and research collections, again, in Tunisia, as well as um, I spent some time at the National Library in France and also a library that's now called La Contemporaine, um, where uh, Simone Lelouch or Simone Lelouch Othmani donated her personal papers and archives that relate to the student movement in the 1960s and 1970s. Her and her husband, um, Ahmed Othmani, were both activists. Um, and then afterwards, they, they ended up settling in France. They were both involved in human rights movements. So their personal papers are in France. And I spent some time working in research libraries in the United States um, because some of the chapters in the book, you know, try to situate Tunisia in these broader international contexts. And so there was great documentation, um, though from American perspectives, uh, in a handful of different um, U.S. research libraries. Um, so I largely worked, you know, in addition to all these libraries and, and archives, I also worked with published sources, um, especially magazines. And a lot of the book builds off of the women's press. Um, I also draw from the periodical Jeune Afrique, which um, before it expanded to become sort of an French language Africa-wide publication was, you know, based in Tunisia and started by Tunisian journalists and, and activists. I draw on newspapers and presidential speeches. Some of these are available in U.S. libraries and some are on, on microfilm. There's a chapter where I focus very much on the Tunisian Academy and, and there I also draw on the scholarship of Tunisian academics. So using Tunisian journals like the um, Tunisian Review of the Social Sciences, RTSS. There are memoirs published by Tunisians about you know, what was happening in the 1960s and 1970s. And this includes a few academics, um, cultural figures, again, like Jalila Hafsia, politicians. I use tourism publications and, and conference proceedings. So I'm really kind of building up a bunch of different resources because there are there really is no one central archive to work on Tunisia in the post-colonial period. And so most scholars become creative in pulling together resources from different places and, and using different methodologies. So, you know, I, I still work in a largely archival method where I'm drawing on written sources. As I mentioned, I tried to bring in oral sources and find material from the radio, but wasn't able to find anything. So I'm drawing largely on published and, and written and archival sources um, from the 1960s, a little bit in, from the 1950s and 1970s, but um, in the US, France, and, and Tunisia to kind of get these different perspectives and be able to situate Tunisia within these broader questions that are sometimes national and sometimes regional and other times transnational. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, the kind of now long-standing debate on the position of state feminism in Tunisia's political development um, since the 1960s and some of the main um, controversies and debates. And I think this is a particularly interesting question because quite a lot of research has been conducted on this relationship, but in a very kind of um, contemporary or in the, in the political present of the last decade. So I think that putting this into context would be very interesting um, to our listeners. And then, of course, how the book fits and contributes to these kind of um, areas of thought. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the nationalist view 
which is one that was really crafted around independence, was this image that Tunisia's first president, Habib Bourguiba, liberated women through changes to legal structures of marriage, divorce, and custody, right? But not inheritance, remember, it's just marriage, divorce, and custody. Um, so that's sort of the nationalist narrative that has proved very tenacious. And despite the fact that it's based on these legal structures in the more general understanding, it's just that Burgiba liberated women, full stop, in, in all realms without looking at, at where that came from. So critics of this position um, have pointed towards the limited extent of legal changes for instance, thinking about what is the impact of legal changes in practice, right? Do all women have access to courts if, if they want a divorce? Um, if somebody wants a divorce but doesn't have an independent source of income, right? Does she ask for that divorce even though she has the legal right, right? So really trying to question what happens in practice. Ilham Marzuki and her work points towards the restrictions on, on women's nationality, right? When a woman, when a Tunisian woman married a foreigner, there were conditions upon whether she could pass Tunisian citizenship um, to her children. And already saying, "Well, look, this is this is an example of you know continued patriarchy and just these legal changes made by Burgiba doesn't end patriarchy in all realms of life." Um, and there are other scholars who who noted that there are actually very limited protections for women in labor, and um, despite the fact that. Tunisian women have worked in factories for decades, that women are very underrepresented in Tunisian labor organizations and at the highest levels of, of labor organizing. So there's a lot of writing about women and state feminism in um, political science, right? When, when we look at Tunisia, and, and here I think of the work of Lori Brand, which does a really good job of thinking critically about state feminism and, and the limits and what it meant to organize. And, you know, again, the fact that the legal changes are in what is called personal status, but they're not necessarily in other realms of law, such as, such as labor codes. And then there's also a body of, of scholarship in literary and cultural studies that ask about the role of patriarchy. And again, here I see the work of a Tunisian academic, Aziz Krishan, as being really pioneering. And Aziz Krishan's book, The Bourguiba Syndrome, right? Le Centrum Bourguiba, is a really fantastic critique of the post-colonial state and post-colonial society, thinking through the lens of patriarchy, right? And, and what that meant. And there are a number of scholars, um, I'm thinking of Nuri Ghana, um, Robert Lang, Laura Box, Jared Hayes, who all examine sexuality and, and sexual expression or even sexual desire as, as modes of resistance to patriarchy. So I see my work as being in conversation with this scholarship and trying to think through um, from the perspective of historian, what exactly is happening in the first couple of decades um, after independence. And much of the much of the scholarship is critical of the women's union for its proximity to the regime, um, and 
you know, the top figures in the women's union were very close, both to Habib Bourguiba and his wife, Wasila Ben Ammar or Wasila Bourguiba. And the women's union functioned in a top-down manner. Uh, it was not a democratically structured organization. But at the same time, what I try to point out is that the women's organization is not merely the mouthpiece of the regime. The women who are involved in it are educated. They're often bourgeois. They're not representative of all women in Tunisia, but at the same time, they often tried to maneuver within the dictates of state feminism to accomplish improvements to the lives of Tunisian women. And again, many of them believed in the nationalist mission of the post-colonial state. So in their speeches and in their actions, what they say resonates very closely with the nationalist line. But I try to point towards ways that if we rethink state feminism as part of the nation building process, that this can broaden our understanding of political structures, of economic development, of intellectual life, as well as social and cultural change. And that we can also see that even within this, even within the constraints of, of the nationalist single party state, that women are trying to push in smaller ways and that they're really the ones responsible for carrying out the dictates of, of the state, right? So they actually create what happens in practice. Um, and the president can say whatever he wants, but he, I mean, he's not the one on the ground, right? So they do have some space to create change. Um, and, and I guess my approach is to, in many ways, just be generous towards what they were trying to do and what they hope to accomplish in addition to thinking critically about state feminism and their relationship to power, which was a complicated one and a difficult one. And as any scholar who is looking at Tunisia in the post-colonial period understands, even those who are very close to power are not fully protected from the repercussions of, of dissent. Um, and this is true for, for women active in, in the 50s and 60s as well. Um, it's really interesting the way in which um, you conceptualize the kind of the difference between what, how the, the operation of state power and the kind of um, maybe almost uh, fetishization that has happened around like the independence of institutions. But I think it's also a very interesting critique for political scientists to think about when we use terminology such as authoritarianism or cooptation or kind of the relationship or even the kind of assumption of the spaces where this kind of dissent can happen. So I think it's kind of a fairly big contribution um, to, to that literature um, as well. But I want to turn to something else that you mentioned briefly a moment ago, which is the kind of the global context and the position that the study has in the global context. So as you just described so eloquently, the, the scholarly production on state feminism um, in Tunisia is a wide and a comprehensive field. There's a lot of interest in it from various different kind of disciplinary approaches and perspectives. But you do something else. You link these debates to, to global questions and to a global context. So can you um, elaborate a bit on the position of Tunisian women in the era of global national liberation and civil rights movements, the Cold War uh, rivalries, and also Afro-Asian solidarities, among others? Yeah, sure. So Tunisia was very clearly aligned with the United States during the Cold War. Um, but what I found was really interesting is that despite that solid alliance, 
um, and Burgiba's distance from pan-Arab nationalism, his disagreements with Nasser. Within the United States, and this is from what I can tell about US diplomats, as well as um, funding agencies, right? Like the Ford Foundation um, that were investing in, in Tunisia, there's a clear interest in further cementing Tunisia's Cold War positionality. And there's a vision within the United States, within these government and, and aid organizations that um, development aid as well as military aid can position Tunisia as almost a spearhead for the region, whether that's conceived of as a North African region, the Middle East region, or even sometimes it's thought of as, as um, a space to begin expanding US influence into Francophone Africa. So I focus in um, the second chapter on family planning as an example of development aid that is particularly gendered in terms of how population growth is conceptionalized, who is granted agency and what solutions are proposed. Um, and in the first chapter, I look a little bit at how there is an interest in basically recruiting Tunisian women into the project of spreading US cultural influence um, around the world. And there has been a lot written about the cultural fronts of the Cold War in terms of music, in terms of art. I recently finished Zaina Masri's new book on Beirut in the global 60s. And she talks about Hiwara, the literary magazine and the controversies surrounding that when it was discovered that it was partially funded through, um, through the CIA. But this is also true of women's groups. So what I found out is that you know, Tunisian women are involved in all different kinds of global and regional women's organizations. They're involved with those that are affiliated with the Soviet bloc, as well as those that are affiliated with the U.S. bloc. They travel to Europe. They travel to Ghana. They travel to Egypt. They're really all over. And there's no clear pattern. And it seems that this created anxieties within the US State Department that these Tunisian women were recruited um, by a group that's called the Committee of Correspondence. And it's such a bland name that it's really hard to conceptualize that this is in many ways also a Cold War front organization. Um, and the Committee of Correspondence has clear ties to the US government. It's being funded by the US government and it's a women's group that is basically trying to become friends with women all over the world and then to become pen pals with them over a longer period of time to try to keep them in a U.S. orbit. And Tunisian women benefit from funding by this group. They engage with them when they come to the United States. But what I found that was really interesting in some of the paper trail that they leave is despite the fact that Tunisian women are happy to come to the United States, right? Because it's basically an internship or, you know, some kind of additional training and, and education. They're happy to travel. They're happy to meet American women. But that doesn't mean that they are going to want to become American women or that they drop all of their political concerns about the U.S. war in Vietnam um, or other critiques of U.S. foreign policy. And some of the women who are seen as you know, the leadership of the UNFT who are sometimes criticized as being so close to the regime, Nayla Ben Amar and Radia Haddad, 
you can see in their comments that they push back against this idea that American women know everything about feminism and therefore the American model is the only way that are kind of nice to see when they're responding to these, you know, Cold War narratives and, and Cold War presumptions. So what I try to, to put out there is that, you know, women are also involved in all of these Cold War projects and political and diplomatic alliances. They're being recruited by the United States. They're seen as objects of transformation by, you know, sort of the development specialists, but women don't passively fall into those roles. They actually try to carve their own place. And I think it's Radia Haddad, and she has an interview in a US newspaper where she says something like, yeah, we see that women have accomplished many things in the United States, but basically, why aren't there more of them in parliament? Why aren't there more of them in government? And, you know, we're happy to come here and learn, but this is not a model that we're just going to adopt un uncritically. Great. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Megrimin Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are also available on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, visit our Facebook page, Magribin Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to SEMA newsletter at www.sema-northafrica.org to SEMAT newsletter at www.sematmagrib.org and to Talib newsletter at legation.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.